Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist podcast. Last week we interviewed Sarah Z and today we speak to the incredible novelist and essayist Siri Hustvet on a variety of women artists from Artemisia Gentileschi to Louise Bourgeois, two artists who feature in my book The Story of Art Without Men which is now out in Europe and the United States. But before we get into that I am delighted to say that this series of the Great Woman Artist podcast is supported by Ocular, a premium gallery platform, magazine and advisory business, Ocular represents the best of contemporary art. Ocular.com provides collectors, art world professionals and other art enthusiasts with access to exceptional artwork and compelling articles on artists and the art world. Explore Ocular.com, sign up to their e-newsletter and follow them on Instagram to stay informed on a truly great contemporary art. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is none other than the acclaimed novelist, essayist and author of 18 books, Siri Hustvet. From memoir to poetry, non-fiction to fiction, Hustvet's writing has touched on the topics of psychoanalysts, philosophy, neuroscience, literature and art. Long-listed for the Booker Prize and winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Fiction, Husfet's The Blazing World is a provocative novel about an artist, Harriet Burden, who after years of being ignored attempts to reveal the misogyny in art by asking three male friends to exhibit her work under their name. It is, of course, a triumph and other bestsellers include What I Loved and The Summer Without Men. Born in Northfield, Minnesota, to a Norwegian mother and an American father, and based in New York City since 1978, it wasn't until 1995 that Husfet began writing about art. Since then, her art writing oeuvre has expanded enormously, with numerous books and essays published to acclaim, which often focus on the fate of female artists in history, the biases of history-making, and discuss the likes of Louise Bourgeois, Alice Neal, Adrian Piper, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Joan Mitchell, Dora Mar among others, which I can't wait to get into later on in this episode. Husfet's writing is both eye-opening and groundbreaking. She has questioned how we measure greatness, if art has a gender, the effect of art and literature existing in our memory and the future of fiction. She has looked at the masculine traits of the mind and the female traits of emotion, the domestic versus the intellectual, and analysed how historians have not just told one narrative of art, but the narrative of the world. She has asked why absence is so prevalent and explored how women have reconfigured the body after years of what she calls fictive spaces. I love her writing and it's allowed me to unlock elements and see things differently in books, art and more that exist in my memory. 
Favourite books include A Woman Looking at Men Looking at Women, Essays on Art, Sex and the Mind, and more recently Mothers, Fathers and Others, which is part memoir, part psychological study, so I couldn't be more delighted to be welcoming her on the podcast today. Siri Husvet, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, I'm fine and thank you for that uh, generous and uh, lovely introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Siri. And it's such an honour to be here in your home in Brooklyn. So I have been long fascinated by your writing, whether it be how you have challenged the perception of the female nude, questioned the boundaries between erotic art and pornography, made us think about why, how and who has dictated art history, and how artists such as Louise Bourgeois have used fantasy to make art. You have completely opened up my world in terms of thinking about and looking about art from a psychological viewpoint. So I want to start by asking you, what attracts you to writing about art and the lives of artists? Well, as a child, I, I drew more than I wrote. And uh, until I was 13, I had a fantasy about becoming a visual artist. I still draw. A couple of my books have drawings in them. But nevertheless, I've always been interested in visual art and loved going to museums when I was young. And I wrote my first art essay in 1995 about Vermeer. And um, I did A Woman with a Pearl Necklace. And that experience of spending a couple of hours in front of a single canvas uh, and thinking about it was something I, I realized I loved doing. So Actually, before that, I had often stood in front of a single painting for a long time, but I kept my observations to myself. So there was something wonderful about spending time. The temporal, for me, is very important in looking at art and um, allowing it to happen physically, psychologically, inside the viewer. I think that's very important to me. And as you say... The story of art has been completely skewed um, not only by sex, the story of women artists has of course been completely left out for most of Western history, but you also think about crafts. Right, That's a class issue, and many, many women were engaged in spinning, in needlework, in pottery, other making efforts that were dismissed by the traditional story of art. And it became very clear to me, you know, when I was young, I would walk into a museum and there wasn't a single painting by a woman artist, or possibly two or three in an entire museum. Think of it. And I began to wonder why. How, how is this possible? And there were many stories of this. In the 70s, there was a burgeoning. I was still young, coming into my own, but feminist art made a big impression on me. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting you say, you know, you walk into a museum and the paintings on the wall, even the sort of needlework or the textiles or something, 
And it's almost that, you know, you write so wonderfully about greatness and what greatness yes. means. And yeah. I guess what we're led to believe are these sort of grand mythical biblical scenes of right. oftentimes very misogynistic scenes of the rape of Europa or Susanna and the elders. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are, there are so many layers to sort of uncover with this sort of hierarchies in yes. museums. I, yeah, I think that this is the authority of the museum mm. and that... We, all of us, and I think it's very important that I'm not exempting myself from how greatness skews perception. You know, there actually was a nice little empirical scientific study of people looking at a work of art on the sidewalk and then the same work of art inside a museum hanging on a wall. And of course, our perception is completely changed by that. And so the context is hugely important. What are we seeing? I just wrote a little piece for a um, museum in Germany, and uh, I did some research. It turns out that there are a number of studies that have been done, and the average time that a person spends in a museum looking at a single work is 27 seconds. So half a minute. Now, it's not that you can see uh, works in, in half, half a minute, but I think what you register in a half a minute is probably the imprimatur of greatness or significance. When you go to the Louvre, you see 100 people standing in front of the Mona Lisa. You can't even see that work anymore. I don't even know what it is anymore because the history of it, including its having been stolen, its notoriety, um, the jokes about it, have undermined it to such a degree that I think it's extremely hard to look at it, even if you stood there for three hours. I would love to sort of experiment by actually going to the Louvre and asking people who are looking at it, you know, why have you come here? Why have you made the pilgrimage? What is it about this work that speaks to you? What is the phenomenon? And also it's so interesting in terms of context as well, because so much of those people are actually looking at that work through their phones. They're not even looking at the work in the end. Yes, I really want to emphasize that it's not to make fun of it, because I think what people are doing in museums, and this is the time element, is that the experience is the whole museum, right? So you're doing the Louvre. No one, of course, can actually do the Louvre. You have to walk through many rooms. It's gigantic. It's like the Metropolitan Museum here in New York. Um, but that's the idea, that you're acquiring culture and your perception is then almost entirely determined by either what's in your earphones, something I've never liked, um, <laughs> or an idea that you come into the museum with, right? So John Dewey, an American philosopher I truly admire, wrote a wonderful book called Art as Experience. And Early in that text, he talks about exactly what I've been saying, which is that the embodied reality of making art that is also part of the experience of looking at art, 
gets has been so sidelined by these elevated notions of greatness and the spiritual qualities of art, et cetera, et cetera, um, that we forget that the creative impulse is there in all human beings. Mm. And why do you think that that has, you know, that idea of the spiritual or the emotional has okay, not been? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go. I think... It goes back to a very long-standing problem, <laughs> which began um, in Greek culture and probably even before Plato, which is that the, the mind-body problem, that the mind is associated with masculinity and uh, the intellect and the body is associated with emotion and femininity. Uh, and that trap has repeated itself now over millennia. And that, I think, is really why art by women is perhaps now opening up. And, of course, women have always been making art. So it's not that the woman artist didn't exist. It's that she was uh, jettisoned out of official history. And, of course, for a very long time, art schools and all uh, traditional uh, ways of becoming an artist. But I'm sure, as is in your book, um, there are uh, great artists who did work inside the system, if you will, like Artemisia Gentileschi, who was very well known in her day, but then later scholars pushed her out. Mm which is fascinating. Her father was also a painter, and there were uh, paintings she signed and were then attributed to her father. Mm. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but I mean, it happened with people like Judith Leister and Franz absolutely, and, absolutely, and, 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 and so many artists. And Attribution, mm. yeah. That amazing work by Marie Denis Villiers in the Metropolitan yes, Museum yes. that they all thought was by David and they bought for two hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventeen <laughs> and then in I think the nineties they found it that it was Marie Denis Villiers, but they thought it was a different woman as well in the fifties. But I mean it is extraordinary. I always get <laughs> asked that question, which is, what happened? Was it a conscious decision to push the women out? Well, I think this again is about how ideas really do infect our perception. And it is not necessarily conscious. And again, we have to, I think, all guard ourselves against dismissing works of art by women or any people who fall into the category of an other. Yeah. And let us say that we know who they are because nobody talks about man artists. <laughs> Yeah, it simply doesn't happen. Uh, you know, I've started saying sometimes, well, that you know, the man writer, <laughs> and people look at me, they're so stunned. <laughs> but if you can put an adjective in front of a term for an artist of some kind, then you know that that person falls into the category of an other. Mm. And it's always <laughs> as though we, we're, we're looking at just the default. 
Yes. So, you know, Simone de Beauvoir said this in The Second Sex in 1949, uh, that woman is other to man, right? It's this universal is the man. And this, of course, also goes for whiteness in the West after a certain moment. Um, not before, actually. The female otherness is older and uh, particularly riddled in the West, which doesn't mean that there aren't other traditions that have also uh, put women to the side, but in different ways. Yeah. And then I'd love to, from that, sort of talk about the female nude, because you've yes. written about the sort of nuances, again, sort of between erotic art and women sort of constantly being in these sort of passive and receptive poses. I mean, thinking about that idea of the other or the default or something, I mean, how do you think women have been perceived in art history and what does it mean for them to constantly be viewed in sort of these passive and receptive poses? Because that's also in terms of the ideas and, and how the sort of context, that also informs our view of women in society, the way that they're seen in European paintings. Yes, of course. And, you know, there's a lot of good work on this, on the nude. And John Berger, actually, in Ways of Seeing, um, initiated, I think, a whole feminist way of, of thinking about the male observer and the female image or the nude. You know, I got very interested in the hero worship of Picasso. Mm because I actually wrote a review of the last volume of John Richardson's Picasso biography, because I think um, the brutality in a lot of Picasso's images of women, often, of course, his famously his lovers or what have been called ad nauseum his muses, that the brutality actually became part of Picasso's role as hero artist, the swaggering, masculine, Spanish bull. And there have been, I think, now some good scholarly examinations of this, but the mythos is as much about this masculine persona as the work you know, Picasso was very uh, obviously <laughs> gifted and fluid in terms of style, but his subject matter is as old as the hills, right? He takes classical subjects and then subjects them to, you know, the modernist innovation, but the endless repetition of artist and model, the female nude as passive, and in his case, I think really an object of brutality and misogyny. And this has been celebrated almost, you know, thoughtlessly uh, for decades. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting, an interesting time because I think it's 50 years since his death at the moment yes. and there are all these exhibitions that are being celebrated around the world. And I know yes. that a museum near here is doing quite an interesting take 
on um, that Hannah Gatsby is doing. <laughs> I think it's changing. Yeah. And I was interviewed. It was a documentary talking to people about Picasso. And I don't think they would have talked to me if they didn't know that I'm interested in interrogating yeah. some of these um, assumptions of greatness that are just made. And, you know, I think if I had to endure another show of Picasso and his muses, I would just croak. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's enough already. But I, I, I do think it's happening. I mean, there wouldn't be documentaries about this. And of course, it's long-standing critiques, as I said. Um, maybe one of the most fertile periods is the 70s, which has now become history. I mean, I was a young woman then, but it is now part of art history. And the feminist artists you think about in Europe, someone like Valley Export or Carolee Schneemann, who was sidelined, Hannah Wilke, all of these artists, uh, Anna Mendiata, who was doing very, very fascinating work. They're all different, and yet... They were on the margins of what we think of as uh, the, the big art world. And they're only now being integrated into it. Or you think about the uh, sharp ironies of someone like Betty Serre, whose Aunt Jemima is now, I think, a really <laughs> amazing and valuable work that I see coming up again and again. But not then. Yeah. I mean, so many of those artists I've seen for the first time. So I saw, you know, Betty Sars, Aunt Jemima at Soul of a Nation in 2017. Right, right. I saw Carolina Schiemann's work for the first time ever at the Barbican, similarly with Anna, Anna Mendieta at the Hayward Gallery a few years ago. I mean, I mean, I haven't yes. lived that long. but No, I'm you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> and that's good. <laughs> but I'm trying, I'm trying. And, but, but I think it's so fascinating. You bring up this idea of Picasso. He's so often sort of seen as the forefather of modern art or something. Right. This idea of what is modern art? You know, a break right. from the past, a, the, the sort of eradication of hierarchies, lines shattered on the canvas or something. In my book, I sort of talk about how what also made art modern was the participation of women artists. And this idea that was born in the 20th century and especially in the 70s, because for the first time ever, women were putting their own perceptions on this sort of spin of what Western art history was. And recently I wrote about Susanna and the Elders, but yes. Artemisia Gentileschi's yes. version. Yes. And that being one of the few versions of, maybe the only version really, in sort of pre-18th century, definitely, or 17th century, where she kind of almost gave her a voice and she's not glamorized or glorified or idealized or sexualized. No, or her Judith. Yes, I mean, I did compare her <laughs> Judith in, in, in one essay to the Caravaggio, mm. where Judith is this little wimp who couldn't cut off the head of anybody. And in Gentileschi's, uh, she's this forceful, enraged figure. It's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary work of art. And I'm a great fan of Caravaggio, but in, on this particular theme, she outshines him by many, many miles. Uh, so if you really start looking, these women artists, I think, have been really the victims of scholarship. And that, of course, has been largely male. 
I mean, art history books, the Jansen. I didn't study deeply art history, but I took some classes when I was an undergraduate. And um, the Jansen had absolutely not a single female artist in however many hundreds of pages. Yeah, I mean, it was a simile with Gumbrick's story of art. Yes, yes, <laughs> which yes. Is, and, and his book is essentially the, the story of art without women. I mean, yes. that, 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 yes. that's what it is. <laughs> yes, and no one thought anything about it. See, this is also very important to say. This is what omission means, right? That omission is when a culture has become so sated with the expected that no one sees it. Listen, when I was a little girl, I didn't think, oh, where are the women? Mm. I was taken to some museums in Minneapolis, but I didn't say, where are the women? I had to get older to say, where are the women? Uh, and omission can be hard to identify until it's pointed out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it took me until I was 21 to literally have this epiphany. Yes. It hadn't even crossed my mind. And if I think back to it, you know, I, I, I see it as me being sort of ignorant and naive. But, I mean, once I saw it, there was no going back. <laughs> yes, I, I, think I, I think that's true. But we are students of the culture mm. and to be a student of the culture is to carry yourself with a degree of humility yeah right that's not a stupid position to take it's only through gaining knowledge and caring about what you're looking at that this amnesia begins to emerge. I really believe that. This is true, by the way, in science. It's true in literature. I'm sure it's true in music. It's, it's true everywhere. And it's not only about male and female, but often something related to it. I mean, I've written about the complete oblivion of the organ of gestation, which is the placenta in obstetrics even, right? Or in no images of birth. But in one of my essays, I talk about Judy Chicago before she made her birth paintings, that she looked up birth in Western art. And Nothing came up. Well, I had had that experience before I read about Judy Chicago. I Googled, as we do, to look for scholarly works on birth in Western painting, and it simply does not exist. I mean, nothing comes up. I did find in my research the discovery of an Etruscan shard with an image of a woman giving birth. The head of the infant is coming out of her. She's squatting. 
They found two shards, I believe, with that image in 2011. You know, yeah. a piece, a, a, a fragment Yeah. with that image on it that fascinated me because I had been searching for images of birth in the Western tradition. Now, there must be outside of the tradition people who drew, maybe midwives who drew images of birth, but they're not present in the tradition. Isn't it fascinating that there are thousands upon thousands of images of death and not of our beginning in the world? It's rather stunning. Completely, but I mean, it also just comes back to the Bible as well, which is essentially the Immaculate Madonna and her sort of Immaculate Conception. And and that's the kind of becomes the default as well, because a woman is not supposed to. That's true. I, you know, I think, of course, that uh, cult grew. You know, early Christianity had a much stronger bodily reality. And the resurrection was not just the spirit, it was a bodily resurrection. So it's a complicated church history. But again, if you look at the Greek influence on Christianity, that's where you will see it. The Platonism in Christianity and then Neoplatonism, where the mind-body divide really happens. And so what did the Greeks talk about? What, what so did they here, about if you think about... Plato's Symposium, which is a work I've continued to return to because it's fascinating, but in it, everybody's pregnant. Pregnancy runs through the entire symposium, and Plato comes down on the position that the male philosopher giving birth to an idea is the highest form of birth, right? It's higher than natural birth. Yes, go back to the symposium. Oh my goodness. Um, so that traveled, that has had a grip on Western thought about the body as impure, as low, as connected to femininity and natural birth. So these are deep ideas and they run in the culture. I once <laughs> wrote that if people should read the Greeks, they should read Plato and Aristotle, if only because they will discover how they made up their minds. Plato and Aristotle have had great influence on our minds. So if you fail to go to the source... You're just running around with Platonic and Arist Aristotelian ideas, and you don't know why, right? People always separate the mind and the body. Other traditions don't, right? We think of psychology and biology as if our mind is some floating entity that we all run around with, when obviously it must be embodied, something you can't reduce to a brain, say, because... We're human beings that live in a culture and we live in a social world and that also becomes part of what we call our mind, right? But no, we're, we're beholden to very ancient ideas and this has affected art. That's 
my point. The way we think about painting has been hugely influenced, of course, not only by the Greeks, but by the whole tradition that followed them, that was enamored of classical and ancient art to a degree that I think blinded us to other traditions. And so when you discovered Judith Chicago's birth series, what started to change? Well, you know, there are, you know, a couple of examples of birth art um, in, uh, you know, La Brue, primitive art. This is part of modernism. And there's something often condescending and fetishistic about that too. The way uh, African art was used, say, by Picasso, Brock, and a number of them, with l'art negre, right? There's a brutality in that, too. Demoiselle, I don't like that work of art at all. Picasso's, ugh, I find it horrendous. And it's written about and worshipped, you know, to the skies. I mean, I saw it the other day at MoMA. It's still a sort of pillar of modern art. I mean, yes. I mean but, but I think this is what I find so fascinating right now, is like... When are we going to interrogate? I mean, obviously, you're already doing it. But when is sort of society going to catch up with this idea of interrogating what it is that we are really looking at? But, you know, this idea that actually we're still sort of regurgitating these stories in the sense that, you know, when we think of the rape of Europa or Susanna and the elders, it's actually almost the same as La Demoiselle because when I see European paintings, so much of it when we go into galleries is actually disguising the sort of glorification of violence against women. Yes. Or violence against the other. Yes. I mean, I think... This is all true. And, of course, my idea is not that we slash and burn those paintings. Right? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> We're it's very like, interested like the in the story. A censorship, yeah. It says, no, what I think we want is what you are up to, which is a discussion not only about the brutality that is implicit in the works of art, what that means, and how it infects our perception of lots of things, mm. right? Going around in the world, and who, who are the consumers of this art? You know, museums, I think now, are trying to rethink their role um, as public institutions, and what those institutions mean to particular communities. Uh, and that for hundreds of years, or a couple hundred years anyway, uh, if you think about how it all started in Cabinet of Curiosities for the aristocracy, this is the birth of the museum, right? So it's um, an 18th century institution um, that became then public, but they were they always had this rarefied idea. Who went to museums? It was middle class people, people of a certain class who had leisure time to take in their culture, right? And making the museum more democratic which I think museum culture in various ways is trying to do, 
um, would be closely aligned to John Dewey's idea about what art actually is. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. We are in this sort of really, I mean, I think 2020 was the year that everything changed, but in, in, in the sense that we are in this time where we are introducing new narratives to these places that have only dictated one narrative for so long. And so it's sort of, we're sort of caught in this trap at the moment because we're trying to make the switch, but it's difficult to sort of get both angles, I guess. Well, I think maybe we should think of it not as um, both angles, but that what my fantasy has always been is multiple perspectives, multiple positions from which we can view, say, a, a single work of art. And that requires a form of collectivity, right? I mean, neither of us as a single person is going to be able to embody the multiple perspectives necessary to understand a single work, you know? take one and look at it. So if we can be open enough to insist on a lack of ownership of a narrative, right? Well, then we may find ourselves in this proliferating reality of many voices commenting on a tradition, but one hopes not suppressing voices, right? That's what's happened. You have a rigid narrative that keeps getting repeated over and over again. Although, you know, canons change, and they have changed, right, over time. If you look at... Um, what was beloved in the 19th century. It's not the same as our heroes in the 20th um, and certainly not the same as now. So canons are never as fixed as we pretend they are. And Vermeer was rediscovered or not remembered in the Dutch canon. So uh, that's good to remember, too, that it changes, even with some of these male artists who are now... Uh, seen as gods, uh, their fates weren't sealed from the very beginning. And that's, I think, again, our contexts determine perception. Totally. And it's also the way we've all grown up as well and what we've explored so far and where we've been as well. That's sort of what's amazing about the internet because it is this global conversation that you can have. And I do think there's definitely got to be some kind of correlation with the rise of the internet and the democratization of art because more than ever, even just the way that artists are referencing, the fact that, you know, someone like, um, I did a podcast episode the other day on Vivian Meyer, mm -hmm. you know, her, her work got discovered, you know, 50, 60 years after it was made. <laughs> we look at Hilmar F. Clint. We yes. look at all these artists whose work wasn't known sort of during their lifetime. And interesting how you, you, you know nothing about these artists yet, we can share them online and suddenly they become a sort of phenomena in the whole world. That's right. I don't think we know yet what that means. No. Also, I think there's something strange about likes and not likes, right? Yes. That art like 
everything else is subjected to a binary, yeah. which is the nature of the digital. And my experience with artists and art has always been that what attracts me is precisely what I don't understand. So I'm drawn by ambiguity. I think I've returned to Louise Bourgeois so many times, but it, it's precisely because I can't master the work. So what I like is art that makes me feel I'm not in control of it. I haven't mastered it. So Goya is another artist that I spent a lot of time thinking about because I can't, I can always go back and find something that I hadn't thought about before. One-liners don't really interest me. And I think there is a lot of art out there that serves a significant purpose. It's a one-liner. You know, you get it. And it's not that the one line is bad. It's fine. It's just that I'll never go back to look again. And I think in mass consumption, the mastery of the one-liner is very safe. It's comforting. It is. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, literature like this too. It makes people feel happy. It confirms what they already believe. For me, art is precisely that thing that breaks the categories, right? That interrupts in some way and helps us see from another angle, actually move into that other perspective that we were talking about, or over time occupy multiple perspectives. I also think visiting art at different stages in your life is so fascinating. In fact, and I think we should also embrace the idea of revulsion you know, like at one point in your life, you can find something really unpleasant and then return to it. There's actually um, a, a painter, David Reed, who got me to look at Tintoretto again. Yeah. And returning to Tintoretto in Venice, actually, with David's comments, with, in a way, his eyes. mm made me care about that work much more. There's a simple example. I was, well, not shoved, but nudged into seeing more and seeing it at a more mature moment in my life, right? So that I, I find this all the time. I'm rereading books that it's the same text. Nothing has changed. And... I have another experience, right? So what is this? This is the reality of what I like to call intersubjectivity. My thought is that our relationship to works of art is not that of a person and a thing. So that when we look at art, we already have this thought 
that it holds the traces of another human consciousness and unconsciousness. So there's something more alive about that work than that stool down there, right? And we can ask ourselves, what is that? I think that there is an embodied presence in many works of art that we do feel. Right, if you think about painting a brushstroke, that the hand is there and we perceive even static paintings often through motion. We feel that it's moving. It's a time-based media, really. I mean, our experience of art is time. Nevertheless, a painting, if we're talking about painting, Everything is there all at once. So reading a book is different. Listening to a piece of music is different because it's sequential. So even if a painting unfolds over time, nothing will be added or subtracted from the painting during the looking. It's you who discover something you hadn't seen before. Yeah. Now, I remember you, you wrote about this so brilliantly in, yeah, Mystery of the Rectangle, that amazing line when you talk about painting is there all at once. When I read a book, listen to musical, it has no end. It creates illusion of an eternal present. Yeah. Which is, I, I, that blew my mind. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think this is certainly part of my attraction to painting, um, to works of art. They're... Yes, they give you everything all at once. Yeah. And yet you cannot discover that all at once. I think it's your essay, The Future of Fiction or Literature, or it's in Mothers, Fathers and Others. You talk about this idea of memory as well and books and art sort of existing in our mind as well. Yes. And I find that so interesting with exhibitions that I might never see again or actually public art. I always think about it with like Doris Salcedo's, this work called yes, Untitled yes, from 2003, yes. which is... 1,500 chairs stacked on top of each other and I love the fact that this work just exists in photographs or memory. I never saw that work. No, me neither. But I've seen it yeah. in pictures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But also, and haunting. Yes. So haunting. But I love that kind of, the, the ephemerality of that or, or the transient nature of art as well and literature and, and how, but also the, the power of great art again and again, this idea of it coming back into our lives is the fact that I revisited that work when it was, the Russia-Ukraine war, I re revisited that work when the yeah. COVID-19 yeah. pandemic. It was all these, like that's that's the power of a great artwork that can keep and keep on. Well, also, on. yes, I mean, I think <clears throat> the first line of that Vermeer piece is every artwork is two artworks, the one you see and the one you remember. And so, you know, art, that we care about, and this is personal. Let us not pretend that there's some objective value out there. It is subjective. We have experiences that um, are mediated through the culture, but they're also uh, mediated through our own lives, histories, experiences. Yeah. Right. So um, when you meet a work of art, if we're going to make it, uh, like a quasi-living thing, uh, that is a meeting of what is there in you. The observer 
animates the work of art. Um, what's dead without an observer, just the way a book is dead without a reader. Inert, yeah. right? So we are the uh, the catalysts for the animation of a work of art, and it's different for different people. Yeah. Yeah. I found that so interesting reading what you said about that because a few years ago I, I spoke at the Oxford Union about is all art propaganda this debate and I and I was saying that you need an you need a spectator. I mean I think it's a little like um, you know Popper's idea of uh, the the third world like it's yeah. the, all the books and the art and it's it's there yeah. it's a kind of place one can repair to if you will, uh, but. That's not the same as an experience. So yeah. Suzanne Langer, the American philosopher, talks exactly about art and movement, how we experience art physically. And she famously said several times, art is symbolic of human feeling. I think that's... Uh, a beautiful and precise line about what happens, what can happen. It's symbolic of human feeling, and we have relations with works of art, and we carry them in our memory. If one has no emotional response, you will not remember it. Emotion is what consolidates memory. So certain uh, theories about art, formalism would be one, that try to remove emotion from the experience of art. For me, it's just utter hogwash. And it's, again, that aspiring to art as a masculine spiritual ideal. It's very Kantian too. I mean, Kant is a great philosopher, but the way he talks about <laughs> our relationship to art as being without basically eros or these bodily low feelings is again a repetition of uh, Platonic ideas or Aristotle's diminishment, it all comes back right? To the source. It always goes back, <laughs> and and you know, it's. I happen to be a great admirer of Immanuel Kant, but again, the treatment of of art experience is indicative, I think, of a tradition that is ironically embarrassed by bodily feeling. Uh, and art, right? That's low and feminine and has to be avoided. Whereas, in fact, everyone's um, meaningful relations with art are about feeling. We just forget about dry experiences have no effect on us whatsoever. Yeah. I'm fascinated by, I know that you've obviously written a lot about Joan Mitchell as well. And I know that you also met Joan Mitchell as well. Very briefly. <laughs> but that's pretty Very, cool. That's pretty cool. I'm, I'm pleased that I met her once. <laughs> but, I mean, how do you, 
how do you feel in front of her painting? Oh, I, I've been a fan. You know, so the story of my meeting Joan Mitchell is, is kind of fun. I was um, young. I w- it was in the early days of my marriage to my husband, Paul Oster, who was a real friend of Joan's um, when he was living uh, in Paris in the early 70s. So after we were married, 1982. Yeah, she died in the early 90s. And uh, she had a show in Paris, and I wanted to see it. I was a a fan of her painting. Uh, So, and Paul knew her, of course. So I was the, you know, the wife. I mean, she completely ignored me. (laughs) (laughs) But she greeted Paul very warmly with her dark sunglasses on, looking very mysterious and um, terribly important. Uh, So... I did indeed, I believe, shake her hand um, briefly and said, hello. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a real friendship with her, and um, his, his story is that the first evening he had dinner with Joan and Jacques Dupin, a wonderful poet, and, and Jacques' wife, Christine, and that they were all there, and she just laid into Paul the entire evening, criticized him, who do you think you are? She harassed him, and he took it all pretty well. And after that, they became friends. It was trial by fire. Anyway, I love Joan Mitchell's work, and of course the color, I think she's one of the great colorists ever. And it seems she had synesthesia. You know that did she, she, yes, she did. Um, now, I didn't know how she was did musical I? At all. No, it's not just music. It's, it's when you only. It's only about crossing feelings. So, for example, I have something called mirror touch synesthesia. So, is if I see someone being hit, I have a sensation in my own body where the the person is hit. Yes, it's it was only named in two thousand five. But if I look at ice, I shiver. I've oh had that God. since I was such you know, ever since I can remember. So there's some people who cross, say, sound, yeah, and images. So pick two senses that are crossing over, or people who see numbers, you know, and letters. That's very familiar. So there's an uh, a way of you know that. People, we are built differently. We have um, more or less finely attuned senses for reasons that are complicated. You know, in the study of the brain, we there are, there is a theory that everyone is born synesthetic, right? That infants, all the senses are crossing. And that part of development is that the senses become separated. And uh, so, you know, sound and touch or feeling are in an infant just mixed together. And some of us uh, have uh, remnants of that infantile experience in this stuff. I mean, why do people see numbers and colors? Research is uncovering more and more of this, and 
Um, now, because they have brain scans, there is some ability to to trace this in neural processes. Yeah, it's a wow. So that obviously affects people if you're listening to a concert and the the you know <laughs> the tones have colors. You're going to have a different concert experience. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh! How magic! Yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> Extraordinary. Siri, thank you so much for this You're so extraordinary welcome. chat. I, mean, I, I have one more question, yes, which okay. is, if there was a woman artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Oh, that's such a great thought. You know, I had a chance to meet Louise Bourgeois. Did you? And I didn't. <gasps> and I'll tell you why. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm going to turn the story around to the person I didn't meet quite <laughs> intentionally. Was She was very old then, and she had these salons. On a Sunday at three. And um, uh, a, a friend who had been in attendance said, you know, Siri, you're writing about her, and I can take you. And I thought, what if this... She was famously... Brutal to people who came visiting, you know that. Especially if you were a woman. So I thought, what if I go and I have a terrible experience and then I will be <laughs> partly tainted by the encounter? And it was Rob Store who knew Louise Bourgeois very well. They were friends. So I missed my chance and I guess I remain on the fence, it may have been a good thing that I didn't meet her in the flesh. It might have made the purity of my encounters with her work more full. I think artists that we care about, they do become part of our inner life. Yeah. And yeah. it's not who they were yeah. or are it's something that we yeah. hold dear but um is again one of many perspectives yes <laughs> on the same thing <laughs> yeah yeah siri has thank you so much oh for coming thank on. you it was such a pleasure katie Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the brilliant Siri Husvet. I am just in awe of everything she says and urge you all to look up her books and go out and read them. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.